0: From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And if you're tuning in hoping to hear us recite a list of the names of teachers who are receiving a Master Educator Premium, I hate to disappoint you. We don't have that list. We don't have any word yet about master educator premiums to so put that out there right away but we were watching it very closely at, at this point as we are recording a podcast at ten thirty-two friday morning no news yet from the state about master educator premiums we'll keep watching it watching it almost on a daily basis yeah. when we find out something we'll let you know what's going on with that but stuff that did happen this week that we can tell you about
1: yeah yeah we'll continue to watch uh, for updates on the master educator premium we think they're close we know there's 1,400 of you waiting for the news to see whether you're going to get the bonus. and we'll, The best place to watch is the website, News.org. but I want to get to our top story this week and then talk about how that relates to the current political discussion, but let's talk about the work you did, the analysis piece you did, really, looking at the career ladder, um, which is the state's salary allocation model, looking at the career ladder, especially in light of the current political discussions and this new report from the Freedom Foundation, but kind of give us an introduction to your analysis piece and kind of where it came from, and and you sort of set a couple things straight from the report that people are starting to talk about. Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, this all kind of began last week when the Idaho Freedom Foundation re-released, updated a report that they did a few weeks ago on the career ladder. And not surprisingly, the foundation is opposed to the career ladder, they're saying that it's for five years it's been a failure, and the state should think twice about uh, continuing to fund it or, continue, or, or adding on to the career ladder. So what I wanted to try to do was try to put this into some sort of a political context because we link to the report. I've read the report twice. Uh, this is stuff that we deal with pretty closely here, so uh, I, I guess we bring in a little bit of an institutional um, bias and that you know we deal with these numbers in terms of teacher salaries uh, pretty closely. I wasn't terribly surprised by anything that the group said about the career ladder, about the numbers that they found. I mean, basically. Well, we've reported since almost since
1: day one when the bill was signed in 2015, and then you've done some step back pieces. But we always knew that salaries would continue to be negotiated at the local level, and really with the career the middle, ladder. Yeah. Well, yeah, no shock there. There's a minimum salary set by law. You pointed out, I think it's 38500 this year. But it was always gonna be the case that salaries would be negotiated between the local school district and its bargaining unit, its teacher's union, or whatever the case may have been, and that wouldn't change. And the career letter was just the $250 million plan to send money out to school districts for more pay for teachers. And so we've talked, you've written about, there's a variance between what teachers make from district to district, mm-hmm. and there's a variance between what the state pays out and what teachers actually take home in their paychecks. Right.
0: I mean, there are variances because these are local decisions. Yeah. They are still local decisions. The career ladder is not a mandated salary schedule. It's a method to distribute money to school districts and charters to pay for teacher salaries. And this isn't a loophole. That was made clear in 2015 when they voted on the bill and the law. Right. I mean, this is what we knew going in. And I, I linked back to a story that I wrote in June of 2015, just after the career lateral law went into place. We looked at the variances between average salaries from district to district. We said, look, you got wide variations from district to district. And those those gaps are not going to go away. And the career ladder is not going to erase those differences. And and sure enough, uh, that has not happened. It wasn't supposed to happen, and it didn't happen. So I wasn't terribly struck by much of anything in the math of the Freedom Foundation reporting. But the politics. But the politics is interesting to me. The political timing is interesting. And that's why I wanted to focus in on a little bit with the analysis piece, because... As we've seen just over the past few weeks, and we saw it again this week, there's growing momentum, political momentum, behind trying to build on the career ladder, especially build rungs on the career ladder to help veteran teachers. And that's kind of where where the news from Thursday comes into play, because you're at one of the task force subcommittee meetings, and, and sure enough, that's what's going to be recommended to the task force. That's actually the first
1: task force recommendation that's going to be coming forward from a subcommittee. And this was the... There's four of them, four different groups, and then they feed into that larger task force that Governor Little put together, the Our Kids Idaho's Future Task Force. But this was the educator pipeline subcommittee. I was out there Thursday, they met in Boise, and they actually finished up their work and issued two recommendations. Uh, But the big one, the biggest news, was to build out a third rung of the career ladder that would pay out a base of up to $60,000 in an effort to bring more money to the state's more experienced veteran effective teachers. And so that is coming forward. It's the very first recommendation
0: right. and, that's and, been finalized that we've seen. And, and not a new idea, not an idea that's coming out of a vacuum. I mean, it's it's an outgrowth of the 2013 task force right. and the recommendation of a $60,000 salary that never came to fruition. It's not even occurring in a vacuum in 2019 because you go back just to a couple of weeks ago when State Superintendent Shari Ibarra released her budget her budget proposal for 2020 she's not waiting on the task force. she put 40 million dollars right. of money into her budget specifically for teacher pay raises specifically for something like a sixty thousand dollar maximum maximum salary into the into the uh, the salary schedule so there's a lot of political momentum behind trying to increase salaries for veteran teachers the freedom foundation report kind of goes head on into these political wins and, and says you know we don't think that veteran teachers are being penalized at all with the career ladder we think that they're actually making out relatively well and that uh, the money really isn't getting to the less experienced teachers so the politics of this uh, Freedom Foundation really trying to you know you know you know put a stake in the ground on extending the career ladder and continuing the career ladder I thought the 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 timing of this is really interesting going into a 2020 legislative session where we would expect a pretty robust debate over teacher salaries and what the state can afford to do in terms of teacher salaries in in a tight budget year.
1: Yeah, because we've talked about the budget realities, the scarcity and the competition for resources. And so the timing is interesting. And and we're going to be at opening day of the 2020 legislative session before we know it. Um, and, And so it is coming up close. But there was an important point of context about the Freedom Foundation and about its views on public education that you put in your analysis piece, and I think that that's worth pointing out every time.
0: Right. So, I mean, you know, the Freedom Foundation and the Freedom Foundation's president, Wayne Hoffman, has been pretty out front in terms of questioning the whole premise of a state-funded education system. Which runs counter to the Constitution, which mandates a, a free, right. uniform system of public schools. I and know, runs that every, counter that every
1: legislator takes to uphold.
0: And it runs counter to the conventional political wisdom in the state house, even you know, you know, a- across the political spectrum. You don't have legislators running on the premise of we're going to get rid of public education. Um, so whenever we write about education funding and we write about the Freedom Foundation, I'm always kind of going back to. What Wayne Hoffman said in his own words in February, because I think that's important context. They don't think the state should be in the public education business. But while it is, you know, definitely not a mainstream view on education funding, part of the reason that I find myself paying attention to what the Freedom Foundation is pushing for is that they've got a cadre of legislators, especially in the House, particularly in the, Idaho for the House Republicans who align. Pretty closely to where the Freedom Foundation comes down on just about anything, be it tax policy to you know, you know, spending policies, to now education, to most recently the, the, the dust-up over diversity programs at Boise State University. I mean, there are, you know, you know, there are, you know, they call themselves liberty legislators who, you know, hew very closely to where the Freedom Foundation comes down on issues. So when you get got the Freedom Foundation issuing a white paper saying that the career ladder hasn't worked and should go away, I think there are legislators who are going to be listening to that. So, by extension, I think we have to pay attention to it and, and write about it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that it's a really sharp analysis piece, and it's one of the benefits of being able to specialize at a place like edu- Idaho Education News, focusing on a beat. Um, we were there when the bill was voted on. We've covered it. We've run the numbers. We've requested the data each year. Uh, And and so I think that's one of the benefits that that we put ourselves in that you're in a position to produce a piece like this that kind of takes a holistic look at both the career ladder, the political debate of the day, the context going forward, the Freedom Foundation report. And so I think it's a really good and and interesting piece um, kind of saying where all this fits together right now at this moment in time, which is a pretty important moment in time when we talk about state budgets, education funding,
0: teacher pay, those are some of the most hot button issues across Idaho right now. Right, well, I appreciate that. And then there's a lot for you to read if you go to idahoidnews.org, you can read my analysis, but you know, don't don't stop there. I mean, I have a link to the report itself so you can see exactly what the Freedom right. Foundation is saying. Uh, we have a link to a guest opinion from uh, Frank Birnbaum of the Freedom Foundation that kind of elaborates a little bit more on this we link back to what's been going on with the task force what sharia barra recommended in her uh, 2020 budget so it's all there so you know you can see the dots that i tried to connect in the story and um, look at it for yourself and draw your own conclusions all right thanks so much for that kevin uh really good piece really worthwhile let's look at another set of numbers a set that you took a closer look at these are uh, engagement numbers that the state tracks Uh, That tries to get a sense of how engaged students are in their schools. Right. Numbers are all over the map. What what do they all mean? Well, that's something I really spent the last couple weeks on, and it's sort of, I guess, a mixed bag. It means
1: different things to different people, is sort of the best that I could come up with after talking with a handful of school and school administrators about this. But yeah, as you said, what the state is attempting to track is student engagement, which is how closely engaged and on-task students are with what with their education, with their schooling, with what they're being learned. And the way the state tracks it is they sent out these survey questions, about 20 questions that students took over the previous school year and their responses were sort of coded and scored and they came up with these engagement uh, figures. And the overall headline is that engagement percentage Drop statewide uh, by more than 10%. I think it was close to 13%. percent 13 percentage points, From yes, the 100%. previous year to this year. Why is this important? Well, it's actually one of the measures that Idaho officials on the State Board of Education and State Superintendent Sherry Ybarra picked uh, to be one of our accountability pieces for our plan to comply with that federal education law the Every Student Succeeds Act. And anyway, so engagement is sort of all over the board, up from some schools that have engagement levels in the 70% a range of students down to some schools that have 30 percent and i talked to sue smith one of the founders of upper carmen charter school one of the highest levels of engagement in the state and she said that the data set really validated something that was a strategic effort on their part to focus on student engagement they structured their schedule and their classes in ways that that they wanted to maximize student achievement, pardon me, student engagement, Mm -hmm. and they feel like the report validates everything that they did and makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, I talked to folks who said everything from they haven't even looked at the data to they think the data is a joke and cannot be measured effectively by these student surveys. I talked to Dan Nicolay, the administrator from Coeur d'Alene Charter Academy, one of the highest performing schools in the Mm -hmm. state, had below average student engagement, and he said that it was ridiculous, it was farcical, it wasn't useful, he doesn't think the surveys are valid. And and I I, I don't know. So it's it sort and, of
0: And I and I kinda of see where he's coming from. That you know, there maybe are some students who just don't take a an engagement survey as seriously as others. I mean, you know, kids, you know, sometimes if they're just not in the mood or they just think something is is kind of a joke they, they treat it as such either way it's a, it's a subjective measure engagement right. is subjective as opposed to tracking absentee rates which is an objective measure I mean kids are either in school or they're not and that's and, one and, of the
1: measures they skipped over mm-hmm. in favor of picking this student engagement metric and so that's why we look at it Even though it's sort of mixed reviews, and some people say it validates what they do. Some people say, eh, I'm not so sure about this data set. But the state did pick it for its accountability report, so that's
0: why we're shining a light on it, to put it in the public domain. And one of the things I thought was interesting in your story, though, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to get to it, is what the state is doing with the numbers or not doing with the numbers.
1: Yeah, I tried to reach out to a couple of folks with
0: the State Department of Education
1: communication team in late August, wires got crossed but they didn't respond Uh, or they didn't respond until after the article was published but i had requested some interviews and some more information we do know that they collect the data through the student surveys they post it to the online school report cards and that's a part of idaho's accountability system and they share it with school districts it's not yet clear to me if, if the state does anything else with those numbers and i know some superintendents don't do anything with those numbers i also talked with Superintendent from the Bruno Grandview School District, Ryan Cantrell, was out visiting his district this week for a project that will be coming out in the next two weeks. But he said he hadn't even really looked at the data, mm-hmm. that uh, he prefers an active approach to going in and visiting classrooms and, and, and seeing for himself whether students are on task and, and relying on his principles as instructional leaders and things of that nature. But mixed reviews um, for the student engagement data, how useful it is, what it means, whether it's an accurate measure of student engagement. And, and people do pretty much universally agree that student engagement is a big factor. Right, right, Just like the effectiveness of the teacher in the classroom, student engagement, how closely kids are paying attention and engaged with what they're learning, is a huge factor. There just appears to be some disagreement over the methodology and the usefulness and the validity of these surveys and these particular
0: right. results. I mean, no, nobody's arguing in favor of disengaged students. It's no, no, just no. a question of... How do you measure engagement, and, and what do you do with these numbers, and, and are these numbers really a, a, a read of, of anything of value?
1: If you go back to my story from earlier in the week, yeah, to scroll down, I, th- I think we published it on Monday, but a couple case studies from a couple districts, and you can actually go uh, on our EdTrends data site or the state's online report card site, if you want to look up and see what particular engagement levels are for your school or district. In my story, we broke out uh, the top and bottom from. You know, top ten, bottom ten engagement levels from elementary uh, through junior high, middle school up to high school. So, if you want to take a look and see what the ranges are and how your school is doing, uh, you know that that's there. And we wanted to share that information and kind of move it out more in the in the public domain
0: uh, to put in front of people. Okay, so that's all there. Um, and you can see kind of how the engagement numbers. Compare from district to district, from school to school. It's interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, let's move on. You had a visit earlier this week. One of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos's top deputies was in Idaho, visiting a couple of schools of choice. And we just barely found out about this in time to join uh, the festivities and the proceedings Monday morning. But who was in town? Uh, where did he go? And what did you learn?
0: Okay, so. This was uh, Betsy DeVos's uh, chief deputy. Uh, his name is Mitchell Zace, and don't worry, I had to look him up too because I—he I, is a—he has been uh, DeVos's chief deputy now for uh, more than a year. He's a former state uh, school superintendent from South Carolina, and he was part of what is a larger tour uh, that uh, DeVos' education department is is doing across the country. DeVos and several of her top uh, aides are touring the country, uh, touring schools from around the con- uh, from coast to coast. Yep. Uh, they're calling it an education freedom tour, and maybe not surprisingly, and certainly not accidentally, um, there, there's a heavy bent in this tour towards uh, sort of charter schools, private schools, um, schools of choice, broadly speaking. Right, uh, right, and trying to. Uh, Put a spotlight on alternatives to traditional public education. So, where did Zace wind up going on Monday? He started out Monday morning in uh, in Boise at One Stone, which is an independent uh, high school that uh, serves about 120 students. Independent uh, in that they don't uh, they have their own freestanding board. Uh, they are privately funded. They don't receive any state or federal dollars. They're they're funded largely uh, through a grant from the Albertson Foundation, which also funds us. Um, Also, they do fundraising. So this is a privately funded school. Uh, Toured the school, met with some students, uh, got a sense of the the geography of the place. And, you know, it was an interesting kind of way to tag along because you get a sense of Kind of how some of the students feel, and how the administrators are, are approaching education—very different approach, very student-driven approach. Um, he then went this in the afternoon to Elevate Academy, which is a new charter school in Caldwell, um, serving largely uh, an at-risk student population. A lot of uh, a lot of students from from poverty. A lot of students, uh, you know fairly high uh, Latino uh, student population, uh, fairly high percentage of students who are on IEPs. This is a charter school that is designed to provide career technical programs to students. And eventually they're hoping to expand to a sixth through 12th grade uh, charter school. Right now I think they're serving a little bit over 300 students. One of the things I found interesting about the tour was what I was able to observe and what I was not able to observe. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the One Stone really kind of struck me, the, the One Stone tour, because uh, for the first hour or so Zace was walking around the school, he was talking to some students, he was talking to some teachers, he was going from station to station, just sort of getting a, a look at the learning approach at One Stone, the physical layout of One Stone. Uh, some student board members uh, were accompanying uh, staff on, on the tour. Then he went into a meeting with, I want to say, about nine or 10 students, kind of a roundtable discussion. Uh, We were excluded from that. I was pulling up a chair, getting ready to sit and listen. And one of Zase's aides pulled me aside and said, we don't want press in this. this. We want the students to speak candidly, Um, which surprised me. That wasn't what I expected. Um, So I did what reporters do when they're (laughs) When they're outside a meeting, then they find something else to do. And I was writing up the story uh, of what I had seen to that point. I had one of the One Stone staff people come up to me and say, you know, you're welcome to go into that uh, meeting with the students. And I was like, well, <laughs> thank you, but actually I don't think I am welcome. Yeah, it, and I guess
1: the point is, like, it wasn't the the local staff at once oh, the, no, that no, excluded no, you. No. Not at all. They were extremely welcoming and accommodating, and we've been out and visited that school before. It, it was the, the press agents and the folks from the federal
0: government, the U.S. Department of Education, that... So- yeah, so we were in this unusual situation where the, the guests, the, the the VIP guests, were actually setting the ground rules for right. what was going on in the school. And it was reminiscent to me of the experience you had a few months back First at daughter. Wilder High School yeah. when Ivanka Trump and Tim Cook of from Apple came to Wilder, and you were literally out in the cold.
1: Yeah, I, I got to see them from about 100 feet away when I was standing in the rain, and they pulled up in front of the school, and that was about the much access as I got on that day. Uh, So yeah, sometimes we do run into these things. From time to time, it does happen. And again, that was a case where Apple and uh, uh, the government, the White House, were pulling the strings there. We haven't had, you know, we don't have any problems with, um, you know, the access in our local schools and our local school leaders. It's these larger, higher profile visits involving, you know, frankly, federal politicians is is where kind of the curtain gets
0: pulled back and, and we're told to step aside. It, it would have been really interesting to hear the students and, and hear that dialogue. And, you know, I, again, I, this was not something that One Stone did. I, I, I got that sense pretty, pretty clearly. I think that they probably would have uh, welcomed having um, a spotlight on some of their, some of their students. Oh, talking because about the whole
1: message at the school is empowering
0: student voice and student autonomy. That's very much what the school is built around right and and so at any rate i was at least able to talk to one of the students who was on the tour uh uh, kylie casper she is uh graduating this year she's in her second year at one stone and i was really struck by by her and her story and you know super mature super articulate student uh, you know you you can tell when you talk to some students who's got a really bright future ed uh, she does the, the topic of school choice came up on the tour, on the public end of the tour that I was able to tag along on, and she was asked about her decision to go from Boise High School to, to One Stone, and, and she said, you know, it really isn't a reflection on public education in her view or traditional schools. She doesn't view herself as being anti-public education or anti-traditional education, and I had a chance to sit down and talk to her after I had a chance to talk to Zace, and I, I kind of drilled down a little bit more w- with her about that, and she said, "You know, I was a good student at Boise High School. I was, you know, checking off all the boxes. I was, you know, you know, taking AP classes. Uh, my grades were good, all of that. But she felt like she was getting too locked into grades and too locked into class rank, and she was just, she wasn't even able to celebrate when her classmates succeeded. She felt like she was getting to be too competitive, too locked in to her own achievements." And, you know, she, you know, pretty candidly said, look, I, I was turning into somebody I, I didn't like what I was turning into. So she wanted to take a step back into more of a, uh, you, know, you know, more of a, a non-traditional setting. And she says that it's kind of affecting her views on where she wants to go to college. Because a couple of years ago, she was like, well, I want to go to an Ivy League school. I want to go to the most prestigious school I can get to. Now she's like, well, I want to get to the school that's the best fit, you know. And fit was kind of a a recurring theme, even when I I talked to Zace after he talked to the students. It's like, you know, he said, look, for most students, including his own kids, traditional public schools are a good option, but it is about trying to get as many students into what they consider to be the right fit. That was sort of the the theme from his tour on Monday. It's probably, uh, it's definitely part of the bigger theme of this entire tour that DeVos and her staff are, are going on across the country this idea of promoting choice, promoting options, allowing students and parents more ways to exercise uh, alternatives to the neighborhood public school.
1: And that idea sort of answers one of the questions that we got kind of frequently on Monday uh, from our readers and from the public, which is why aren't why are they visiting a public school? Why are they visiting these schools of choice? And we call, talk about the Department of Education and and in the role that it plays, but uh, I I think what you just said explains why they chose to visit those schools and why we didn't see them at a traditional right. right. I mean, school. there's you know,
0: there's no question, there's no disputing that uh, school choice is the, the central theme of Ben DeVos' education right. department. There's no secret there. We've known that for for three years, and we didn't need Monday's tour to to tell us that. It does sort of underscore how this department is is viewing education and the larger picture of where students go where, where where do students go to pursue their education so you know that's why i did want to ask zace about public schools yep. from the standpoint of not so much well why didn't you tour public school today but from the standpoint of you know as much as you want to talk about school choice the vast majority of students are still going to go to a traditional public school. That is the model that we have, and that's the model that uh, you know, we've had for, for, for generations. And he said, you know, for most students, that works. For my kids, it worked. For me, it worked. But, you know, again, you know, his takeaway was we want to give students more options to figure out what is, what's the best fit. Anyway, we have full coverage from the meeting, from the tours on Monday. You can check that out at Idaho8news.org. Yeah, good stuff. It's been a busy week, and it's going to, I don't know, I was just looking ahead. For me,
1: the next two weeks especially are going to be busy. Next week, I expect the remaining subcommittees from Governor Little's task force to finish up their work and to finalize their recommendations. I think I have meetings Monday, Wednesday, and perhaps also on Friday. So we'll have full coverage leading up to... What's well, going to be a fairly important meeting, I think, October
0: 1st in Moscow, which I will be attending yeah, as well. Yeah, that's, that's the big task force meeting coming up. That's when, really, the uh, the rubber meets the road. Yep, yep. So we'll know more about the recommendations,
1: where this group is going, and then, you know, so why is this important? Obviously, if the governor accepts these recommendations, it's going to be part of the education agenda that he's going to push forward in the 2020 legislative session and through each of the three remaining years in
0: his first term. Right. So while you continue to track what's going on with the task force and the subcommittees, I'm going to get the chance to take a little bit of a step back uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I am going to Ann Arbor, Michigan, for an Education Writers Association uh, conference for some training on higher education, uh, looking at some higher education topics uh, You know, at the University of Michigan. It's going to be maize and blue overload. It's going to hurt my eyes. But it's going to be very valuable training, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, you know, We'll come back and be able to talk a little bit about what uh, what uh, what I heard and what I learned uh, back East. Yep, good stuff. Uh, continue to follow the homepage, IdahoEdNews.org, especially if you want
1: information on the Master Educated Premiums. We do think that that could be coming sooner rather than later. Not sure of an exact timeline, but we'll keep you posted. Also, if you're on Twitter, you can give us a follow at IdahoEdNews. That's where we break... Our big stories and live tweets, some of the big meetings for sure. We will be back next week with another new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. We'll talk more about the task force. We'll talk about what you learned up in Michigan. And we'll look forward at some of the big stories this fall that we'll be chasing as we get closer and closer to the important 2020 legislative session. But as always, thanks so much for listening. We have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.